This is the Retirement Key Podcast with Pat Volk, financial advisor of Abish Financial Services. What I enjoy is really looking out for folks and helping them retire successfully and really put a little bit of ease in their life. You've worked hard your whole life to earn and save. Now you need a plan to make that money work hard for you. It's a totally different day and age now. You have to embrace the change, but I've always said it's about the plan. It's not about the products. Pat and the entire team at Abish Financial want to help you unlock the keys to your retirement. And I'm Heather Branch here with Pat to ask him for insight on the things that you can be doing now to prepare for your financial future as you get ready for what many often call the second phase of your financial life, looking towards your retirement years, wanting to make sure that you've got your money in place, got things lined up, ducks in a row, if you will, so that that money is going to last you through what's hopefully going to be decades of a happy, healthy retirement. And Pat, you and I were talking off mic before we started this podcast today about the decades of experience that you've had in the industry, which I think is so great because I feel like right now, more than ever in a very long time, we are dealing with things that the majority of people just really haven't seen or don't have any experience with. And since you've been in the industry, when did you first start? Because you started right out of college. Is that not right? Yes. I started uh, selling insurance actually right out of school, uh-huh. 1992. Okay. So you went through... Wasn't there a mild recession in the early 90s that happened? I believe there was. Yeah. Um, truth be told, I was so young, I did not know anything. Right, you didn't, anything. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't see the circus that was happening around you. I was too busy doing what I was told to do. Right, got it. Okay, as we all are in the beginning of our careers. But then you you were, you did see that dot-com bubble bust in the early 2000s. You told yes. me, I didn't realize, you talk about the Merrill Lynch experience, the timeline on that. Yeah, I had gone over over. I made a decision and was wooed over to Merrill Lynch. And my date to go over was September 8th of 2008. And when did the roll fallout begin? Wasn't that like a month before? Uh, September 14th. Jeez. I remember Brenda and I celebrated. We went down to New York. We saw a Broadway show. And on my way back on the train, I had my buddy call me uh-huh. and said, did you hear Merrill's going under? Merrill's being bought out by Bank of America. And I was stunned, stunned. Yeah. And went back into the office uh, the following week, and it was gradually watching all the desks empty out. Wow. What a time. It was, and I mean, I remember just watching it on the news unfold, and you were watching it, witnessing it in real time right in front of you. Yep. And then you stayed at Merrill Lynch for a few years despite mm-hmm. that. And Correct. then you had the the ability to watch that incredible bull market run we went on for a decade. And then we went through the pandemic and then we went through 2022. This is what I'm talking about. You've got a lot of knowledge to share. It's it's actually a lot of background on that. The one story I tell is in October of 87, when we went through that crash, I always view that as almost my introduction. I was still in school. I remember sitting in my economics class Mm -hmm. and the teacher was, for some reason, excited about it. I don't think he liked Reagan and (laughs) was like, this is obviously what we should have expected from all these policies, et cetera. Uh And I always just remember that moment as kind of almost like my dipping my toes into economics. Okay, I realized 
right around when I was just selling insurance that I wanted to do a lot more. Got it. Uh, there were so many other things that we could be able to offer to folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really where I decided to make the shift into investing and into real financial planning rather right. than just sales. It's interesting you brought up the uh, economics class and your economics professor because this is what I wanted to talk to you about today, where we are economically speaking as a country right now after just looking at the past 22 years where we have landed now that is 2023 and metabolizing it all economist Mohammed el Arian is calling out the fed he was on bloomberg news saying that it cannot get us back to a two percent inflation without crashing the economy and he believes that what they need to do is they need to restructure the goal to target more of a three to four percent inflation range and the idea of all of this i feel listen we all know inflation is affecting our bottom line the money in our pockets but what is he saying here that's i guess my first question what's going on here from an economic perspective well, what happened, and let's just kind of focus in on the pandemic. Okay. When we enter into a recession, difficult times, the pandemic, a very unusual event. Yeah. The Fed steps in to try to make things easier. So we had really an unprecedented economic and worldwide event. Sure. They immediately lowered rates to zero. This was really on the heels of the 2008 great financial crisis, where they had also lowered rates to zero. They kept them virtually that low up until mid-2016. They started raising the rates gradually. So from the end of 2016 through mid-2019, we had been able to raise rates from zero up to 2.4%. Now, let's just keep that in perspective. That's a two and a half year period with a very gradual increase in interest rates. What happened at the end of 19, and most people will not remember this because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. is we ended up having a massive liquidity problem in the banks. To keep it as simple as possible, banks are huge lenders. They were lending money out at extraordinarily low interest rates. They sell this debt. They sell it to pension funds. They sell it to investment funds, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. When interest rates went up, even gradually to 2.5% or so, the banks had a massive liquidity problem. Interest rates go up. The value of all of the debt that they've issued is depleting. I think people need to understand. Interest rates go up. Bond prices fall. Debt prices fall. Banks suffer. Okay. And they needed liquidity. They had gone to the Fed. They were able to have the Fed lower the rates initially mm-hmm. from around September of 19 through the beginning of 2020. They lowered rates about maybe a percent, percent and a half or so. Then the pandemic hit in February of 2020. Mm-hmm. Everybody forgot about the liquidity crisis. It was almost as if your house was on fire, but you don't remember that because the tsunami put it out. Got it. We had a bigger problem ahead yep. of us. Okay. They now had permission to lower rates to zero. They injected close to $7 trillion into the economy at that particular point. Mm -hmm. Everyone will look at that and say, that's what caused the inflation. Yes, that is true, but that is not the full story. It was all of the years from 2008 
through 2020, those zero interest rates where people were able to borrow very cheaply, able to have housing very cheaply, and this caused the prices of everything to start to go up. Once we had the pandemic, you shut everything down, you inject all of that liquidity, and then you start to open up this economy again, people are going to start spending and prices started going through the roof. So it was the pandemic, but we can't forget all of the history before the pandemic and realizing we basically issued this country a credit card with a zero interest rate without a spending limit. And everybody in at least the United States, we are a spending culture. Yeah, we are. We spent and spent (laughs) and spent and spent. Uh And that is, in essence, what caused this inflation problem. So we're watching the Fed working to what they say, try to control inflation. And these rates, compared to what I think you were saying before, it's happening faster now. Correct. What the Fed's ultimate goal is, by raising interest rates, they're going to make things more expensive. It's going to be more difficult to buy a home. It's going to be more difficult to buy a car. And that's just in your household. But if you think of the global economy, there are going to be corporations that are going to have more difficulty borrowing. And you're seeing this especially in the tech sector. These are companies that borrowed extraordinarily cheaply and they were able to expand their businesses. And a lot of these tech businesses didn't even have any earnings. So you had, they looked as if they were fantastic. People were bidding them up like they were going out of style. But when now when we're raising interest rates, the cost to these companies is eventually going to come to roost. Okay. You can think of a family that over leveraged themselves with a credit card at a very low rate And now you're having that interest rate go up on the debt. And they're running into problems where they cannot afford it. This is what is known as demand destruction. And I know that sounds harsh, but the Fed has that. If you read the Fed notes, they talk about demand destruction. What that means is that people are going to lose their jobs. You cannot go out and buy things if you don't have the money to go out and buy things. Mm -hmm. So if you're unemployed, that will start to bring inflation down. They're going to squash that demand. Okay. That's what the goal is here. All right. So this idea then about what Mohammed Al-Aryan was saying, needing to restructure the goal to be 3 to 4% range instead of 2% range. What -hmm. are your thoughts on that? Well, when you think about the arbitrary number of 2%. Mm -hmm. It is arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Economics is not a definitive, it's not a hard science. It's not physics. It's a soft science. So when we think about a 2% interest rate, you need to understand what's going to be the cost to get there. Are we going to continue to put people out of work? Ultimately, and I wish You know, we lived in a perfect world, but we live in a very political world. And if you want people to get out and vote and you want certain people in power or whatever it may be, you're not going to be able to accomplish that by making their lives miserable. So they do want to get inflation under control, but they also want to make sure that people are somewhat happy, if that makes any sense, Uh, simply put. So as they've been raising interest rates, they know that's going to put a lot of destruction, a lot of pressure. We've seen jobs being lost, especially in the tech sector. I think we've lost over 250,000 jobs just since November in that particular area. And that's just an isolated area. 
So for them to say, let's just continue at this, we're really in an unknown area. When the Fed comes in, I'd like to call the Fed the interventionistas okay. because that's what they are. Okay. Okay. <laughs> They're always intervening. When things get tough, they want to lower rates. When things get good, they want to raise rates. They're always trying to control rather than just letting nature take its course. Okay. They're always coming in and doing things. So in this particular case, they want to raise the rates. They want to destroy demand. But at the same time, they don't know exactly when the full impact of their actions are going to be felt. Got it. We've been raising rates now for a year. It typically takes nine, 15 months, maybe even 18 months for an initial rate increase to flow through the full economy and show an impact. It doesn't have the same reflection inside of the stock market. If they raise rates or if they lower rates, the stock market reacts immediately to this. Okay. The economy does not. Okay. The stock market and the economy are two very different animals. So we're really in a very unknown area right now. Okay. We've raised rates extraordinarily fast, extraordinarily high. I'll go back. 2016, 2019, gradual rate. We went up to 2.4, caused a problem. The banks are now flush. They have over $3 trillion in reserves. They have over $2 trillion in what is called a reverse repo market. The banks are flush with cash. So the Fed can continue to raise rates. The banks are going to be safe. And that's what they're going to continue to do until this impact is seen in the general economy. Okay. It has not been fully seen yet. Okay. So let's talk about that then to kind of wrap it all up. Let's put a bow on it. Thinking about all of this macro level stuff, for lack of a better word. What does it mean for somebody who is in this phase of life, the clientele that that you work with every single day at Abish Financial Services, folks that are late 50s, early 60s into 70s that are either getting ready to retire or have just retired? What are these conversations about on a micro level? On a micro level, we're concerned with cash flow. I'll use an example I've used for a number of my clients. If you're familiar with the rule of 72, The rule of 72 is a nice little way of saying, how long does it take to double my money? So if I'm earning 7.2% interest, it should take 10 years for me to double my money. If you think of that from an inflation perspective, what if inflation were 7.2%? What does that mean from a cash flow? That means I would need to double my income in a 10-year time frame just to buy the same goods and services that I'm able to buy today. I'm not saying inflation is going to remain up at a 7.2% rate, but even if we bring it down into the threes, you're still looking at a 20-year time frame, which really fits with how most people are going to live in their retirement. Mm -hmm. We meet folks that are living 25, 30, 35 plus years in retirement. Are you prepared to have your income double over that time frame. And that, that's a very serious conversation. That's what I was about to say. So you obviously say this to people, right? I don't like scaring people, well, but no, I'm I not going to ignore the elephant in the room. So then where are the benefits? Where do we find the gold nuggets amidst all of this then? Where we really want to start looking is building a portfolio that's going to be able to still offer some growth, but we also want a little bit of stability. What we tend to look for are opportunities where we can still give definitive growth. We want the portfolio to be able to grow, but at the same time, we want to focus in on 
reducing losses. We are encountering folks that are coming in. They've been working. They've been saving. They are in what we call the accumulation phase. Mm -hmm. They don't care if the market goes down. My 24-year-old daughter doesn't care if the market's going down Mm -hmm. on her 401k. Mm -hmm. She's not going to use the thing for 40 years. But if I'm 60 and I've suffered a 20% loss, that is going to have an impact on me because I am that much closer to what I call the jumping off point where I need to convert my savings into a steady income stream. And if I'm adding insult to injury, meaning market's down 15, market's down 20, and I am now forced to dip in at greater and greater levels just to pay my bills, we're really going to have a problem on our hands. Whereas if I was able to create a portfolio with a little bit more stability with reasonable growth, you know, just because you're offering some stability doesn't mean growth goes out the window. Yeah. That is really what we're ultimately looking for. We will also look at, do they have pensions? Do they have social security? Do they have elements in their portfolio that are perhaps indexed to inflation? Mm -hmm. We here in the DC area, we have a lot of federal workers. We know their pensions are indexed. We have military folks, their pensions are indexed. Social security is indexed to inflation. So we do have some inflation protection there. What we're trying to do is take the other dollars that have been amassed and manage them appropriately so we can index those also for inflation, yet at the same time have them last the rest of your life. This idea of growth and stability within your retirement is actual. It is a real thing. There are opportunities that you can seek and find within your own portfolio. It's all about having that knowledge, that education of understanding what those opportunities are. And that's what Pat and the entire team at Abish Financial Services work to show the folks in their office every single day, and they can show you as well. If you have questions about your own portfolio, seeking growth and stability for your retirement years, they can help you create a plan and help you find some answers to those questions. And as always, you can begin the conversation anytime. Just find us at retirementkeyradio.com. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Key Podcast. Be sure to listen to the Retirement Key Radio Show, Saturdays and Sundays on WMAL. Investment advisory services offered through Abish Financial Wealth Management, LLC, number 310633, a registered investment advisor firm. Financial professionals are not licensed in all 50 states. To find out if Abish Financial Services is licensed in your state, please call 571-577-9968. Abish Financial Services is not affiliated with nor endorsed by the Social Security Administration or any other government agency and does not provide legal or tax advice. Annuity guarantees rely solely on the financial strength and claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. By contacting us, you may be provided with information about insurance and annuity products offered through Abish Financial Services, Inc., Virginia Insurance License, number 12782. Zero.